I think that video is funnier every time I watch it. And so you've only seen it once. I'm going to show it to you one more time because I think it's that funny. Now you know what's happening and you're ready for it. What, one more time. I like this video. There you go. That's a great video. And if you have ever raised kids, or you've ever worked in the church nursery, or you've ever spent about three minutes with toddlers, you know that's reality television. If you look up reality TV in Google, Wikipedia, that's the video that comes up. That is real life. We are like that. And uh, you don't have to teach kids to act that way, do you? They just know that that's how they're supposed to act and that's how they're supposed to treat each other. In fact, most of you, uh, if your kids are grown or if you're in the process of that, you spend 20 years trying to get your kids not to do that. And sometimes you're successful in that and sometimes you're not successful in that. But this is not how we want our kids to act and so we try to mannerize them, teach them what is appropriate and inappropriate. We try to civilize them, teach them how they ought to talk how they ought not to talk, but can we just admit that all of us have an inner toddler in us like that? It's just waiting to come out, and maybe it's a specific person that brings that out in you, or maybe it's a specific circumstance that brings that out in you, or maybe you've just learned it's not appropriate for adults to act that way, and so you repress it, and you stuff it down, and you hold it in, but be honest, that is inside of you. And the thing about toddlers is they just don't know they're not supposed to let it out. So they just do what all of us want to do. And they just say what all of us want to say. And they don't have any filter. This is in all of us. And the fact that it's in us in part of our lives naturally doesn't mean it's right. Because sin is part of us. And sin is in our hearts. And we've talked about sin a lot lately that we are not sinners because we do sinful things. We do sinful things like this because we're sinners. We show up with this precondition to act this way. Isn't it a good thing that as adults we've just moved past this totally? Isn't it a good thing as adult church members that we don't ever have to deal with things or episodes like this? This is just only what happens in the nursery down on that end of the building, not on this end of the building. I told you last week about me going to meet with a pastor search committee in Kentucky, and I told you some of the funny questions they asked me. Will your wife come to church, and uh, do you like fried chicken, and we laughed about that. And so I go to this church, and they voted on me, and uh, it was not a unanimous vote. Nothing in that church was unanimous, and so I kind of snuck in with enough, and there I was, first-time pastor, 
and uh, never been a pastor of a church before. My, my mom, as I grew up, worked at our church, so I kind of had some knowledge of, of church life. But this was different because the church we grew up going to was a large church. And now the church that I found myself at in Kentucky usually had between 80 and 90 on a Sunday. And so it was a smaller church. And I thought it was interesting when I got there that the church had two services, 90 people. And we had two services, and they were in two different buildings. They had a, a new building out back, and they had one service in that building, and they had the old traditional sanctuary, and we had one service in there. And as you can probably guess, there were two different styles of music. And the early service was contemporary-ish, ish, and we met in the new building. And the late service after Sunday school was traditional, and they had piano and organ and on and on and on. And so I go to this church, and I'll be honest with you, at the time uh, in our lives as a family, I needed a job, and I needed to get my foot in the door somewhere, and so I would have gone to this church, I didn't ask a whole lot of questions up front, I would have gone no matter what their problems were, we needed a place to, to serve, and we needed to pay some bills. And so I go to this church, and we do the two-service thing for a while, and you got about 45 over here, and you got about 45 over here, and up and down, and back and forth, and after a couple of months, I go play golf with a guy. I'm playing golf with this guy who plays in the praise team in the early service, the contemporary service. And I start kind of asking some questions. You know, we could, we could all fit in one room. You know, we got the, the two deals and the two buildings. And I'm just kind of nosing around, asking questions. And we're talking, and he's telling me some of the history. And eventually, I just asked him this question. I said, just, just hypothetically, what do you think would happen if we only had one service and it was traditional? He said, well, I'll just speak for myself. I'm gone. Really? Just the, I mean, you, do you need to think about it? You, you want to wait till the next hole to answer that question? <laughs> Put some, nope. If that's what we do, I'm out of here. And I said, Is, okay, help me understand this. You have, you've grown up in this church all of your life and you're, you're late 30s, early 40s, and I mean, this is your church, and you're telling me that if that one change, that one thing happened, that you would just be gone. I'm out of here. I, I said, just why? Explain that to me. Well, it's very simple. I cannot worship with the sound of an organ or a piano. Can't. I said, do you mean won't, or do you mean can't? I can't. Okay. End of conversation. So a couple of weeks go by, and I'm having lunch with a guy who goes to the traditional service. This guy ends up being my best buddy uh, when I look back on, on my time at this church. Old guy, okay, way older than me. And we're having lunch, and we're talking, and I said, hey, I start the same questions. We got the two services. We got the two things. Tell me about this. Yeah, you know, it, blah, blah, blah. And they tell me all the history and all this stuff. I say, hey, what would happen, do you think, at our church? Just, I'm just throwing ideas out there. I know this is crazy. What would happen if we just had one? We all came in together, and we just had one, and we did it with this kind of music. What do you think would happen? This guy's been going to this church for 60 years. I'm out. You want to finish your meal? Do you want to pray about it? <laughs> you, you want to think about it? You don't know? What do you, you're out. I'm out. I, 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 I would be gone. I would go find another church. Okay, explain this to me. 
Why, why just, I mean, you, you just knew that's the answer. You didn't have to think about it. Well, I'll, I'll be real honest with you. When there's drums, can't worship. Do you mean won't? Or do you mean can't? I can't worship. End of discussion. We'll keep the two. I need a job. <laughs> the truth is I had told those guys coming in and they knew and they had asked. I was in a temporary stage of life and I said, look, we're, we're going, I'm going to school one last time. After, after that, it's done. And our heart really, uh, as much as we've enjoyed our time here, our, our heart is in a different place and I, I don't know how long we'll be here. And they said, that's fine. We, we would love to have you as long as you're there in school. And so I didn't want to try to cram some big massive change down their throat and then leave them to pick up all the pieces and deal with it. And so we left it like that. I can't with the drums. I can't with the organ. And I think back on that, on two guys that I love and care about. And I think it's not all that different than what I just put up on the screen. For the toddlers, it's the little Mustang. This is my Mustang. For these guys, it's it's my drum set. It's my service. It's my building. And over here, it's this is my building. This is my organ. This is my service. And you look at that and you say, this is a problem. I don't think that you can call yourself healthy with that. And I realize that our church is in a very, very different place, but I think you understand from the example the danger of you and me insisting on our own way at this place in pretending like this is our church. It belongs to me, and my preferences and my likes will control my participation and my involvement here. There's a danger in that. Our series is called I'm a Church Member, and so we've talked a couple of weeks. What does it mean, number one, to be a functioning church member, using the gifts that God has given you for His glory and for the good of this church? Last week, we talked about what does it mean to be a praying member. It certainly involves praying for the sick in our church, but it's much, much more than that as we talked about last week, and we've covered all of those things. This morning, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a deferring church member? This morning's sermon and next week's sermon are very, very close, but they look at really the same thing from two perspectives. This morning, what does it mean to be a deferring church member? Next week, what does it mean to be a unifying church member? You can't really separate them, but we're going to try to make a distinction this morning. So let me start with the definition of defer. To defer. To yield respectfully in judgment or opinion, submit, acquiesce, capitulate. Be honest. Our culture doesn't like this. To yield respectfully in judgment or opinion. Maybe, that's that's worded pretty nicely that maybe we could accept that. But what if I told you, here I'm going to preach a sermon about being a submitting church member. I'm going to preach a sermon about being an acquiescing church member. Or how about the last one? Here's a sermon this morning about being a capitulating church member. You hear those words, and I don't know how you hear defer, but you hear those words and you say, I don't think I'm supposed to be that way. I don't think any of those things are good things. And the problem when we hear those words and we hear the negative connotation is that we are more impacted by the kingdom of this world than the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
and the values of the kingdom of Jesus Christ flip the values of the kingdom of this world on their head. And Jesus is crazy enough to look at his disciples and to say to them, I expect you to defer, to submit, to acquiesce, to capitulate, and to do it respectfully to one another. And so this morning I'm going to talk about what does it mean to be a deferring church member. First principle comes from Mark 9. Mark 9, and here's the idea. Following Jesus means giving up your preferences, period. Following Jesus, if you want to do that, means giving up your preferences. And I want you to look what Jesus said. Look in your Bible at Mark chapter 9, verse 33, 34, and 35. It says, they came to Capernaum. This is talking about Jesus and his buddies. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, Jesus asked his friends, what were you talking about on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Sounds a lot like us. He sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all in a servant of all. Just something to think about. I know that sometimes I ask you guys rhetorical questions and you answer them. Don't answer this. Okay? Are you listening? Do not answer this. When you think about the average church member in Odessa, Texas, do they look more like this or that video? Don't answer that. Jesus says, If you want to be part of my kingdom, you have to redefine greatness. He understands that in the kingdom of this world, greatness is defined as being on top, on having your way, on having your voice heard, on having your opinion known, and on getting what you want. That was true in Rome, just as true as it is in the United States of America. Nothing has changed. Toddlers have not changed. In ancient Rome, it wasn't Camaros, but it was rocks or sticks or whatever. It doesn't matter. The Camaro or the rock or the stick or the church issue or the music or the drum or the organ is irrelevant. The issue is your heart. And Jesus says, if you're going to be great in my kingdom, you have to be last. You have to defer, capitulate, acquiesce. You say, do we just roll over on matters of truth? No. That's not what he's talking about. You say, do we just roll over on matters of morality and right and wrong? Absolutely not. But what he's saying is, your preferences cannot rule the day. Following me means giving up your preferences. If you want to follow Jesus, you give up what you prefer. If you're a member of his church, you give up what you prefer. And something that used to be an issue becomes a non-issue. Following Jesus means giving up your preferences. You understand, Jesus is not asking you to do or me to do anything he hasn't already done. He says, if you want to be great, you have to become the servant. And we read in the previous chapter of Mark, or the same chapter, Mark 9, right here, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the parallel verse to Luke 19.10. Luke says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Mark says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for you. Now he's asking you, if you want to be part of his kingdom, to do exactly what he did. To put your preferences in the back seat and to defer. Look at another passage with me. Philippians chapter 2. This is a passage we could, we could look at this week or next week. It fits with both, both ideas. Philippians 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. You can read about Paul going to a town called Philippi in Acts 16. And he goes to town, and there is no Christians, there is no church. And so Paul starts sharing the gospel. And the first person who responds to the gospel is a rich businesswoman named Lydia. She gets saved. The second person whose life is changed by the gospel is a slave girl who used to be possessed by a demon. Paul casts the demon out. She becomes now the second member of the church in Philippi. Paul gets arrested for that. You can read about all of this in Acts 16. And the third person who essentially joins the church, puts her faith in Jesus, is the jailer in Philippi who hears Paul singing and then all the stuff breaks loose. He thinks he's going to have to kill himself because Paul's going to escape, but he stays. Paul shares the gospel with him. He trusts in Jesus. So there's your church. A rich businesswoman the blue-collar Joe, the jailer, and a teenage girl who used to be possessed by a demon. And Paul says, there you go. You're the church. He has to leave town almost immediately, and he leaves them in Philippi as the church. Amazingly, it grew. More people got saved. More people put their faith in Jesus. More people came and joined this body of believers in Philippi. When Paul looked back to this church, this was his favorite church. And never when he wrote the letter to the church in, Philippian, in Philippi, the letter of Philippians, never did he just openly rebuke them and say, you guys are idiots, you're messing up, you're so stupid. He did that in other letters. He didn't do it to the church in Philippi. He did at the end of the letter say, listen, listen, there's two ladies in the church who can't get along. One is named Euodia and one is Syntyche. He names them by name. Can you imagine? They get the letter. The pastor stands up to read it, and he gets to that part in the letter, and he's thinking, oh, Paul, why couldn't we just keep this generic? Why couldn't we keep, oh, Paul, do I have to say it? And he said it. Euodia, you're sitting over here. Syntyche, you're sitting over here. Paul's 100 miles away, and even Paul knows the two of you can't get along. And Paul says, I'm urging you to get along to be unified, to defer to one another. And in chapter 2, right in the middle of the book, the heart of Philippians, Paul describes what he wants them to do. Look at Philippians 2, verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry, or conceit. It's not you against you. This is not a contest. This is not a power struggle. That's not what this kingdom is about. If you want to be involved in a power struggle, go back to the kingdom of the world. This is not rivalry. This is not conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. That's deferring. 
I'm going to count you as more significant than me. That's not the wisdom of our world, and you know it. It's not the wisdom of Rome, and they knew it. And Paul says, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Again, he's not asking them to do anything Jesus had not already done. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, clung to. But he made himself nothing. And he did that by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. There it is. If you want to be first, you become last. He willingly became last. He willingly humbled himself, and God was the one who exalted him. He has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Four ideas about unity and deferring that you can't miss in this passage. The first one is this. Unity must be a priority. It must be a priority. You could put in the same blank, deferring. It must be a priority. Paul knows, as well as you know, that if you aren't intentional about it, it's never just going to happen on its own. Do you know what happens on its own when you're not intentional about it? The video. That's default. And Paul says, you guys got to be intentional about this. You must fight for it. Secondly, Unity requires humility. Humility. Verse 3 and 4 are tough verses. When you understand that verse 3 and 4 tell you one of the most important responsibilities you have as a church member. Doing nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourself. Looking not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. My friends found themselves in a situation where they could not do that. All they could see was their own interest. And if those interests weren't going to be satisfied, they would go somewhere else. And they would find a place that would satisfy them. That's missing it. It's totally missing it. It requires humility. Listen, Paul doesn't want you to think less of yourself. He wants you to think of yourself less huge difference he doesn't want you to just sit back and say okay I'm supposed to think that I'm so rotten and I'm a worm and I'm nothing but a toddler waiting to explode I'm such a horrible person I'm bad I'm bad I'm bad that's not what he's talking about he's saying if you do that you're still thinking about you quit thinking about you put yourself out of your own mind and look to the interests of others count others as more significant than you Number three, unity is a corporate issue. This may seem obvious. It may seem basic and simple, but it's worth pointing out that when Paul is writing to them in this letter, he says in verse five, yourselves and yours. He's using what we call y'all. I'm not talking to Euodia and Syntyche as individuals. I'm talking to everyone. Unity will never be a reality unless it matters to Y'all, to all of you, 
It's a corporate issue. Number four, the life and death of Jesus provide us with a picture of what it looks like to humbly defer to one another. And this is the big heart of the passage, the the big screaming, flashing light. Paul's saying, look, you want to know what it looks like to defer to one another, to be united in your church family? Just do what Jesus did. He's not asking you to do anything that he hasn't already done. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, though he was God, did not think that his position as God was something that he had to cling to and that he refused to give up. He laid it aside, and he became nothing by becoming a servant. We're right back to Mark 9. You want to be great? Become a servant. He became a servant, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself to that point. You understand that your sin separates you from God, and that only when Jesus Christ humbled himself and died your death on the cross is that sin removed so that you can now have a relationship with God. And the point of all of it, the end, the goal of all of it, is that every knee would bow and confess that Jesus is who God says he is. Every knee, on heaven, on the earth, under the earth, above the earth, beside the earth, every knee. Someday your knee will bow before Jesus in humility, and you will confess You are who God says you are. You are the king. You are the Lord. If on that day, it's the first time that you genuinely humbled yourself to acknowledge that, it's going to be a bad day. If on that day, it's a culmination of your life leading up to that saying, I'm going to bow before Jesus now. I'm going to do what he did. I'm going to do what he's calling me to do. That will be an amazing day. And the difference between those two experiences is what will you do with him now? Will you humble yourself before him now? Will you acknowledge him as Lord now? If you've never done that, today would be a fantastic day to do it. Much better to do it today than on the last day. His life and his death are a picture of what it looks like to humbly defer to one another. Let's sum it up like this. What does it mean to be a deferring member? Here you go. When it comes to non-biblical issues in the church, our default position ought to be, and this is straight out of the definition I showed you earlier, yielding respectfully. Okay? Non-biblical issues in the church. And that may seem like a strange thing to say, non-biblical in the church. But there's a bunch of them. Piano, organ. Not in there. Wednesday night service, Sunday night service, Sunday morning service, two services, three services, one service. Not in there. On non-biblical, non-right or wrong, non-yes or no, truth or falsehood issues, your default position, as much as you want to be the inner toddler and say, that's my Camaro, your default position becomes, I yield respectfully. It's not about me really don't need to have a vote in this. It's not my church anyways. It's your church. It's not my kingdom anyways. It's your kingdom. And the default position becomes yielding respectfully. The author of the book that we're kind of tracking through is Tom Rainer. And he has done an incredible amount of research on churches in the United States of America. 
not just Baptist churches, but evangelical churches, all kinds of churches. He studies them, he polls them, he does surveys, he goes and he visits. He's got a team of researchers that work for him. And most of the time, when they're studying churches, they're looking for good things. They want to go to good churches. They want to go to a church that has it put together, that is growing, that is healthy. And they want to try to figure out, how are you guys doing what you're doing? And then they tell the rest of us, this is maybe some things you ought to be doing. But in the process of that, they have to look at churches that aren't doing so well. And sometimes they come across churches that are really, really struggling. And so he puts together different books on different topics and and different lists on different issues. Here's one list that I think is interesting. The top ten characteristics of inwardly focused churches. Top ten things that are true of an inwardly focused church. Number one, worship wars. Number two, prolonged minutiae meetings. Number three, a focus on the facility, thinking of the walls and the ceiling and the carpet as the church instead of y'all as the church. Focused on the wrong thing. They are program driven as opposed to gospel driven. Meaning they feel like this particular program is a magic sort of secret thing that unlocks the power of God in somebody's life. We're going to let these programs direct us instead of letting the gospel and God's word direct us. Program driven. Inwardly focused budget. Money only spent on themselves. Inordinate demands for pastoral care. This is not talking about when you're sick and dying, you'd like the pastor to come visit you. This is talking about, pastor, my kid plays soccer at three, aren't you going to be there? Pastor, the, the girls' JV volleyball team has an out-of-town trip in El Paso, aren't you going? Aren't you going to participate? Aren't you going to be involved in that? Inordinate demands for pastoral care. Number seven, attitudes of entitlement. I'm entitled to these things. Do you know how long I've been going to church here? I've been going to church here longer than you've been alive. This is my church. You know how many dollars I put in the offering plate at this church? Do you know how many times I have volunteered my time to work at this church? I've built the walls of this church. I'm entitled. Greater concern about change than the gospel. Self-explanatory. Anger and hostility. The result of everything in front of it. And lastly, evangelistic apathy. Let me tell you two things that are true of those kinds of churches. And there's a lot of them. Number one, they are filled to the brim with people who refuse to defer to one another. Packed full. And you say, well, let's be honest, they're probably not packed at all. But the people who are there refuse to defer to one another. Second thing is true of these churches. They're not reaching anybody with the gospel. And they're not growing anybody in the gospel. Period. They're not. It is not happening. And that is seen in the last bullet point. Evangelistic apathy. Here's the commitment this morning. It's in your bulletin. It's on a pinkish reddish piece of paper.
I will not let my church experience be controlled by my personal preferences and desires. I'm a member in this church to serve others and to serve Christ. My Savior set the example of service by humbly going to the cross for me. I will joyfully deal with any inconveniences and matters that simply are not my preference or style. I will do my part to help my church keep focused on the main things, namely obeying the great commandment to love our neighbor and fulfilling the great commission to make disciples of all nations. If that is a pledge that you're interested in making this morning, as we think about what it means to be a church member, you can sign your name, fold it up, and put it in the offering box when you leave this morning. As I have told you every week, and as I will tell you every week in this series, signing your name on this piece of paper is not magic. Signing your name on this piece of paper does not mean that in two months, something's going to come up at Emmanuel Baptist and you're going to want to act like our toddlers on the video. You're going to. And I'm going to. And the commitment, and not just signing your name, but the commitment is to say when that happens, I'm not just going to stuff it down and cram it down. I'm not just going to try to, to hold it all in and pretend it's not there. I'm going to confess it as sin. And I'm going to thank Jesus that he died on the cross for that sort of selfishness and self-centeredness. And I'm going to remind myself that my preferences will not rule and control my experience in this church family. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. We confess that we are wicked people. Father, we know that this world teaches us to be focused on us and what we want, how we want it, when we want it, where we want it. Father, we need you to work in us. The wisdom of this world has been drummed into us from birth. And so we pray that you would work change and revolution in our hearts, that you would flip our values upside down. That we would understand that greatness in your kingdom means service and deferring, and humility. Father, that we would embrace the fact that Jesus is calling us to do what he has already done for us. Father, we do not want to be an inwardly focused church. And I thank you that many of the things on that list I don't think are huge issues at our church. But Father, we know the sin in our hearts. And we know our bent towards selfishness and self-centeredness. And so we pray for grace, not only to forgive, but grace to change. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.